This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, an intimate forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is part of a series on food and body image. We're going to be focusing today on the subject of anorexia and perfectionism as part of the larger context of eating disorders. My guest is Lori Galperin. Lori is the clinical director of Castlewood Treatment Center, a residential treatment facility for eating disorders in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome to Safe Space, Lori. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So I'd like to start by, uh, I know you have a really important philosophy about working with eating disorders such that you're not trying to fight it or control it, but really looking at the symptom itself uh, for understanding what, what it gives or what its function is. And I wondered if you could tell me, start there by explaining what, what is the purpose that an eating disorder serves for a person? Well, um, I think it really varies from person to person. I guess the basic philosophy would be that at the same time that you absolutely do need to provide nourishment and give a person all the encouragement it takes to nourish themselves and be able to stabilize them at that level, that that can only go so far without knowing actually the underlying function and reasons that the eating disorder came about and the reasons why it still feels necessary in the person's life. So I guess the reasons vary from person to person, and usually it's more than one reason or more than one function that the eating disorder serves, but perhaps some of the more common ones would be, um, for example, with anorexia, I think there are a lot of people with anorexia who very much need to be in control of what comes in and out of their body. And I think sometimes it's alarming when you actually find out the degree of control that's being exerted. So it's not just the starvation that's going on. It's the extreme diuretic use, the extreme laxative use, um, you know, even to the point of many, many, many pills per day. And... I think it's as though the person has fallen out of their ability to trust their body, and so they have no faith that their body will do with what comes into it anything that could be useful and left to its own devices. So I think the person often feels as though their life really depends on controlling this process of what enters and what exits. And when you say that, I know we'll get to other ones as well, but when you say that, that they've lost trust of their body, What would be a reason that someone would lose that level of faith in their own body? Well, I think there are many things that can happen to turn a person against their body or to make it kind of a mind-body division. Um, I, I think just culturally, in Western culture, we tend to think that the mind should have dominion over the body as though the body were some, um, disobedient child that needed to be brought into line instead of respecting the innate wisdom of the body. So I I think there's a cultural predisposing factor in that direction. Then I think if a child has things happen that cause them to feel very out of control of their body, and sometimes it might be something that is intended to create that, as with abuse that's intentional and aimed at a child. Um, But sometimes I think that even when everyone's doing the best they can, things happen. For example, children who have to have a variety of medical procedures 
or something that causes the body to experience a variety of pain that the child feels unable to control. I think there are many pathways to becoming um, out of relationship with one's body. And then I think often a person blames their body for every bad thing that happens or blames their body for its natural response to things that happen that aren't their fault and that certainly aren't their body's fault. But it's often easier to blame some aspect of oneself Yeah, so you start to hate the body because it gives you headaches, or you hate the body because it's not strong enough or thin enough or pretty enough or whatever it is. Well, you hate the body because it won't yield to your will and because it responds in ways that you can't control at times. Mm. You know, for example, I've certainly treated a fair number of sexual abuse survivors. And I think many of the things that separate them from their body are that um, first it was annexed by another person for their own use, and so the person feels like an object. And then sometimes the body responds all of its own accord, and the person feels as though somehow their body betrayed them rather than that the other person betrayed them. Yes. And they feel great shame about that, presumably. Exactly. When, in actuality, their body was just doing what a body does. Right, these unwieldy bodies that aren't machines. Well, I think that for anorexics, um, however it comes to be this way, I think many of them would really prefer if they were machines rather than human beings because a machine is more predictable um, and less vulnerable. And um, I think a lot of anorexics who've been anorexic for a while really see themselves in a very objectified way and want their body to get by on less care than, say, for example, the car they drive. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about being objectified, we really are talking about I mean, if the body's a machine, it truly is, it becomes a thing. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I don't mean to focus entirely on the body, though, because I think that the person in their entirety often really attempts to become machine-like, a machine for productivity, a machine that can please other people and not disappoint anyone, a machine that doesn't feel so much anxiety, that doesn't feel loss. And I don't know, I I guess I could kind of illustrate that. I I think actually a lot of people with eating disorders are some of the most sensitive and by nature insightful, even compassionate people that I've ever met, only mostly not to themselves, Mm. but to everyone else, very compassionate and caring. But I think that, you know, they have formulas that they adopt for how they should function, that only apply to them. And they would consider it cruel to treat other people that way. But somehow it doesn't feel disrespectful to expect a machine-like performance from themselves. So I think that a lot of anorexics are extraordinarily perfectionistic. And um, many of them also have had anxiety disorders as a precursor to the development of the eating disorder or depression 
or obsessive compulsive disorder. So let's talk a little bit about that because I know, mm-hmm. I think the statistics are something like a third of people with anorexia have OCD, is that right? Obsessive compulsive disorder? You know, I can't quote you the precise statistics, but a very significant number have OCD prior. And then, as you probably know, when a person uh, starves, they become more obsessive compulsive. So there have been studies done where they took a group of just regular men and put them in starvation circumstances. I don't know how they got that by the ethics committee of the research subjects. Um, monitoring they committees. paid the subjects very handsomely, let's hope. <laughs> but what they found out was that these normal males with no predisposition toward anything, um, once they were in starvation circumstances, they became irritable. It was hard for them to concentrate. They became obsessed with food. They started to clip coupons. They started mm-hmm. to talk about recipes. And they started to do things in a much more rigid and rote and manner that really reflected um, kind of a response to the starvation of becoming more OCD-like. And then when they were able to refeed them, it quickly reversed itself. So more rigidity sets in, more obsessing. Um, and the eating disorder itself with anorexia, it's counting and it's checking it's checking the body in different places to see what size it is and is the same size that it was two minutes ago. It's calculating exactly how many calories the person's had that day, right down to the five calories and the lifesaver they were forced to eat, um, and calculating the input and the output and making sure that they've exercised enough, for example, to have gotten rid of all the calories and more that they've been forced as it were, to take in. And so it's a very obsessive-compulsive process, I think, but one that's not solely limited to just that aspect of life. It's interesting because, you know, I'm trained to think of OCD as as a truly brain-biological illness. Mm -hmm. And so what we're saying in a way is there's this vicious cycle where starvation will exacerbate the maybe pre-existing obsessive-compulsive disorder. So we're saying that there really is a biological root or a contributor to anorexia, that it isn't purely environmental or situational. Is that how you think of it? I think it's very hard to tease out um, what leads to what, but I think you're really right when you say that it's a feedback loop and that one thing um, leads to the other, essentially. You can't separate brain-body even though the anorexic would like to. Yes, yes, and they and they sort of interact in an, an unfortunate reinforcing way for the person, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah, so I want to come back to where we started because I was very interested in what you were saying, looking at the different functions of the symptom. And we talked about one in terms of the control. Um, are there other functions that the symptom of an eating disorder serves that it would be worth naming? I think absolutely. I think... Another thing that it does is it's mood-altering. I think sometimes when people have depression or anxiety, they, in essence, medicate themselves through an eating disorder, either by consuming a lot of food, which changes the brain and certain types of food, or the process of purging, um, or the process of starvation. I think it's actually perhaps an attempt to offset um, anxiety, 
um, or sadness or other unwanted feelings. Some some it, of the people that I work with, when they talk about purging, they talk about feeling cleansed afterwards. So they really, they they felt ucky and dirty and heavy and awful, and then they feel sort of clean, almost like a high afterwards. Yeah, I, I think there are two parts of that. I think one part is there is a sense of purification that a lot of people describe with getting rid of. And I, I think what's gotten rid of feels like more than just the food. It's it's like when you do expressive therapy with clients and they actually go through the routine um, and recreate, without actually purging, but recreate the routine that leads to the purging, it's like they're trying to get rid of much more than just the food. It's like down the toilet goes a lot of feelings that are also unwanted and unwelcome. For the time being, of course, they come back later, hence the need to continue to purify and cleanse. But um, I think there definitely is that. And then, as you say, a lot of people really describe kind of a high from the starvation or a high from the purging. Um, or a high uh, from consuming vast quantities of food, you know, until the aftermath sets in, until the shame and the regret and uh, all of the feelings surge back in. So, you know, in a way, in a way, anorexics are often very, um, very much more interested than the average person in being virtuous and not disappointing people and and not wanting to make waves. And so it's not as though they are likely to go out and find street drugs to offset their depression. But starvation can be the addiction, you know, of the good child in so many ways. And um, and even the rebellion in a way. I think sometimes people feel as though the eating disorder is the only thing they have that's truly theirs, that other people don't have a right to somehow appropriate. It's very poignant, really. So the relationship to the eating disorders can become a very intense one, I mean, where the person really feels they need it, Mm -hmm. and it becomes precious. I think so. I think, you know, I've seen letters that people write to their eating disorder where it's as though their eating disorder were at times the only friend they had in the world the only source of comfort that they felt they could allow. This feels very poignant. I think so. And I I think that becomes the problem with trying to extinguish something that you don't yet know the function of, is that what gets put in its place then? And how can the person sustain recovery if they're not things that replace that which works, but yet at the same time is killing them? It's so interesting because, you know, I know there's a, it was a popular book at one point that was called Drinking a Love Affair. And it was a mm-hmm. person's story of, you know, relinquishing alcohol, but describing it as if it was a relationship with a lover. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so often in eating disorders, clinicians, we get pulled into a, a power struggle around it, trying to stop the person from doing this. But we rarely think of the relationship with an eating disorder as that almost like a, a love relationship. Yeah, I think it's a very, very complicated situation because as a therapist or as a parent or as a spouse or as a friend, it just breaks your heart to watch a person waste away in front of you. And the denial 
that many anorexics have is legendary. So your heart breaks. And at the same time, if you get into a power struggle with the eating disorder, instead of trying to understand its function, that's a power struggle you're likely to lose. Right. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space. I'm talking to Lori Galprin about eating disorders and the importance of understanding the, the function in a person's life that they play instead of just trying to beat it back. Um, so let's continue with that, Lori. Tell me more, some of the other functions that eating disorders can serve in a person's life. Well, um, I think, again, sometimes, and this sort of points the way to what's needed therapeutically in order to allow a person to remain on the road to recovery. I think a lot of times for anorexics especially, but many eating disorder clients that use many different aspects of an eating disorder, um, there are people who often have difficulty with interpersonal boundaries. And what I mean by that is it's hard for them to say no. Um, Often the eating disorder client is the one you can call in a crisis, the one who bakes casseroles for any loss that anyone in the community has experienced, though never eating the casserole themselves, is the person who never says no, is the employee who goes the extra mile. And, you know, that sounds like a good thing. I mean, I don't think I ever didn't hire somebody because they described themselves <laughs> as overfunctioning or a perfectionist. And yet those very same things um, are the things that can grow to such a proportion that literally they can kill a person. And, you know, it's very interesting because sometimes with an eating disorder client, a family will have a difficult time understanding how such a thing could have occurred, but yet one of the parents will be very much a self-described workaholic, and the other parent will be very much a self-proclaimed caregiver. And it's like, well, your child's got the best of both worlds in a way, but unfortunately, at such a lethal dose that... Um, that the one to suffer is actually the self because now they really want to both take care of everyone and please everyone and exceed every expectation and feel unworthy if they don't. That's a very interesting thing because many eating disorder clients are extraordinarily successful until the disease takes them down and makes it hard to climb a flight of stairs. Um, or hard to walk from the car to the office. Um, so so they, really, they really go the extra mile and don't feel able to enjoy their accomplishments because every accomplishment, every new accomplishment sets the bar even higher. So I want to come back to something you said earlier because I wanted to really understand it. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, you'll have a family that on the outside, everything looks so good. Mm-hmm. And then they'll have a, a daughter who in her teenage years develops a severe eating disorder. And maybe it is exactly as you described. The father's maybe a workaholic. He works a lot. Or the mother's a caregiver or a perfectionist. But, but all in ways that are very rewarded and look very good. Right. And so... Spell that out for me. How is that a problem for the child? Well, I think it can be complicated, and I really want to put it in a way that doesn't sound like any sort of an indictment, because I think that people cope 
in the best ways that they know how and that are available to them at the time. Mm. And so maybe I could maybe I could give you a personal example. Because um, I hesitate to use any particular client's example in a public forum. But um, so just briefly, for example, in my own life, my um, both sides of my family, my grandparents were immigrants and and had really nothing and came to a new country and had to start over and the circumstances were hard. And um, then if you look at my mother's family, there were seven children and everyone had to work hard and everyone had to adjust. And no one really complained because everyone was just busy trying to eke out enough of a life in order that everyone could get fed. And then um, into that family, my mother being the youngest of seven, something occurred, which was that her mother became very ill. And though they took her to doctors and specialists, no one could really figure out what was wrong. And so all seven of the children, but especially my mother as the youngest, had to watch their mother die a painful death slowly um, without any recourse to figure out exactly what it was or how to cure it. And, you know, in a house where there was little time for much emotion, that was a massively grief-filled event to have to assimilate. So I think they all did the best they could with it and went on, but part of how they dealt with it was to not really talk about it. And so I never really knew what it was like. So then in my childhood, I was about six when um, my mother's other parent died, my grandfather, and she was desolate, and I think it brought up a lot of the ungrieved feelings for her mother. And I had never seen my mother so desolate, so it scared me. Yeah. Shortly after that, she had to go in the hospital for a week. And because everyone wanted to protect me and not worry me, they didn't give me much information. So I, um, mm. being fairly introspective, even at six or seven, was terrified that what they were keeping from me was the news that she was going to die. So um, in, the, in the dearth of information, uh, that was what I concluded. And when I concluded that, I decided that, you know, I better be very good and not worry people and not add to my mother's stress and that I could never say that that was my fear because then she would be worried about me and that might hasten her death. And I couldn't really tell my father and because um, I don't didn't think he would know how to deal with it. And after that, I started to get stomach aches. And after that, I started to, you know, think about how to bring order to my universe. But I think I lived in fear from that moment on of death and my mother's death in particular. And, um, and they continued to keep me away from death. And I think keeping me away from it as they did, because they thought I was too young really to go to funerals and such, made me more scared of it. And what's interesting about that is that whenever I've actually told that story, I find an incredible number of clients really have an episode like that that they very much relate to where something happened that caused them to feel like the world was very out of control and they didn't know what to do to bring it back under control and that for whatever reasons, they didn't want to burden other people with it. 
um, not because necessarily they were told not to, but for example, in my case, I didn't want to bring about the very result that I feared most, and so kept it all to myself. And, you know, then it brings about the very things that you fear somehow, even while trying to be protective of a child. So I think, you know, a lot of people, what works for them as a way of life in the next generation or two doesn't quite hold up as well. And it's not because anyone did anything wrong. It's just that it really becomes an opportunity for the whole family to begin to attend to things that they might just have had to note and then keep on going. Because in their generation, perhaps, it served them okay, and they didn't wind up in a treatment center. But in the second or third generation, it's actually killing someone. So, Lori, I I just want to pause in a way to I just acknowledge that story and your uh, generosity in sharing it. It feels very moving to me because it feels like as I as I listened to you, what I felt was compassion for every every player in it. Exactly. You know that and I can imagine that that is the same way you approach the families of the I'm, patients that you work with that everybody was actually motivated by such sincere good intentions. Exactly. And and it it wasn't ever an intent to hurt someone. Everyone Not was coping. Usually. Right. Well, of course, sometimes there truly is yeah, abuse sometimes and trauma. There, there are the rare exceptions to that. But generally speaking, you're so right. And that's the thing. I think families get worried that somehow clinicians will blame them. And, um, and, and I think that fear of blame somehow keeps everyone from changing and growing and healing. I think it's very important, as you say, that everyone in the family really, if they wish to avail themselves of it, can utilize the opportunity as a chance for growth and healing and repair. You know, I don't know any parent. Well, the only parents that worry me, I often say at Family Week, are ones that say, I not only did the best I could, but if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Right, no, like, that, really? Yeah, no, that's very worrisome. That's scary. Right, I don't want to blame you, but this is an invitation to, to grow. Yeah. Yeah, so is it all right with you if I ask you a little more about your story? Yes. And, it, you know, if, please feel free if it, if it feels too personal in any way to, to set a boundary with me. Exactly. Yes, I will. exactly, as we were saying. So what, I'm, what I heard is that here you are, a young girl, your mother's in hospital, you're terrified she's dying, but you can't tell anyone, and you, no one's telling you. So you become afraid, and you try to have something in your world feel safe and orderly. And mm-hmm. so, and so for you, did that go on to become a, a, a way that you really started f- controlling food? I mean, did it become an eating disorder for you? No, it's interesting about that, though. What it did become is, I think, what could have been diagnosed as um, the beginning of an obsessive-compulsive process, if not disorder. And again, I think this is maybe more typical than than people think. But um, I think what happened was, um, you know how kids are. They're kind of superstitious. So if you can't go through an existential crisis and come out the other end and figure out how there's really any sanity and predictability in the universe, you try to imbue the the scene with some. So, you know, like when I was a kid, 
you didn't want to step on a crack because you'd yes. break your mother's back. Well, Absolutely. that worried a lot of us who are prone to be sensitive and a bit obsessive. Yes. We avoided a lot of cracks. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think what I did was, you know, you try to you try to instill something. So I think I started to think that, well, if I did things in threes, perhaps, because there was me and my mother and my father, and that that would keep the three intact. And, you know, I think I used a lot of kind of superstitious and obsessive ways of dealing with things. I think mm-hmm. I tried to predict the future and um, avoid calamity. And I think I tried to be good in order not to bring more pressure and being good is really a full-time job. So, No kidding. We're going to have to stop in a minute. I, yeah. I want to ask you one last thing because it feels so connected to this, which is about the role of, you know, trying to be good with shame and perfectionism. I wonder if you could just sort of speak to the heart of that because I know that's so much at the heart of eating disorders. Yeah, well, I think there's a way that I could say it, which is, kind of where we were headed before is, well, what's really necessary to treat an eating disorder besides helping someone to actually eat the food and nourish themselves on a routine basis? And I think some of the things that are necessary alongside that are you have to get the person to feel comfortable saying no and setting interpersonal boundaries, which is awfully hard for a person to do who feels very little entitled or deserving. And I think for eating disorder clients, you know, the saying, love thy neighbor as thyself, I think often they're much better at loving their neighbor. And so the bi-directional nature of that Mm -hmm. message has to begin to come through to them, that Mm -hmm. they can't be the one exception to their general love and compassion, that they themselves are just as deserving as any other person on the face of the earth. I think you have to help them learn that perfection isn't a goal and that being human is a goal and that vulnerability won't get them squashed. And I think that's very hard. I think you have to reattach them to their trust in their body, which is a long process. And I think you really have to help them begin to use human attachments to deal with all of the feelings that the eating disorder is there to wash away or there to contain or there to numb them out from. Lori, and I, think he, I need to stop you. Okay. We need to stop. Well, Anne, there's so much more, but thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to have you. And I want people to know that if you want to contact Castlewood, you can find them online at www.castlewoodtc.com. Uh, Castlewood is a residential treatment facility for eating disorders that does really beautiful, wonderful work. Lori, thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you very much, Anne. Bye-bye. Bye.